This is the Unearthing Art Podcast with Michelle Luminato and Beck Lee, where we dig into the messy reality of making art that matters, raw and real conversations about being an artist, navigating the creative process, and expressing our honest and sometimes weird selves. So Michelle, we're back in the virtual space, having met in real life, in the flesh, for the very first time on just Saturday? Like, it wasn't yeah. that long ago. It seems like 100 years. Because I was down in Melbourne. Yes. From Brisbane. And so we thought we can't miss this opportunity to actually see each other. And it was a little weird to be outside of our little boxes <laughs> and face to face with the height differences. And That's the, it. It's like, who that is it. this person? I'm so yes. used to seeing in 2D. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like the 3D you're like oh it's just it's a different experience yeah. I loved I got to sneak up on her for starters so that was kind of fun um you scared the crap out of me she's standing there at the train station <laughs> and I snuck up behind train her. station and some yes. weirdo comes up behind me <laughs> God. and then I had this horrible experience of thinking oh my god I hope it's her <laughs> <laughs> but it was and yeah. it was nice but we yeah we were trying to talk walking side by side and it, it was really weird because we're so used to seeing each other like literally face on you know mm-hmm. eye to eye that talking from the side was just such a different experience wasn't it it was a lot the first 10 minutes because we just saw each other for the first time but we couldn't actually look at each other so we were trying to walk through you know a crowded street all this you know, noise and there was construction going on and we decided that we were going to head to the NGV, the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, seemed like a good arty activity <laughs> that was handy to the city. So we arrived and we're just trying to acclimatise to seeing each other for the first time and we were at the gallery and there was all this stuff going on and we're like, let's sit down, have a nice <laughs> cup of, I had a nice cup of tea, Michelle had a nice cup of coffee. We yep. sat and faced each other and just had a nice chat to start and it felt a lot calmer and normal after that i should also say we had a vague plan that maybe we'd be able to record something while we were there in person but (laughs) we're obviously not very good multitaskers because the (laughs) idea of walking talking and managing the recording and kind of being able to talk to each other and think about the art like it was just too much, it was just, it? Oh, too much. <laughs> we could we could barely walk and talk and look at the art because yeah. it was just it's just a lot going on and yeah. it was a busy day as well because it was a beautiful day but yeah it was when it came to the recording it was like yeah maybe we'll just talk about what we can record next time yes and of yeah. course there was just so much material in front of us as we were looking around as well at the ngv and the ngv for anyone who lives outside side of Australia is the National Gallery of Victoria and it's one of our great art museums in Australia and they have permanent collections and then temporary exhibitions as well but um, yeah we got really stuck into the permanent collection which was really fun yeah the modern modern yes 19th and 20th century I think that encompassed Um, I feel like we were mostly looking at 20th century yeah from what i recall and the very first painting as we walked in the entrance was a joan mitchell was which i was really excited about because 
I find her inspirational. And I that was the first Joan Mitchell I've seen in person. So we raced over and immediately realized that we were going to have a lot of fun walking around the gallery together because we got right into the details, didn't we? We were looking at all the, yeah. the brush strokes and the textures. And one of the very first things we talked about was... It isn't that when you're able to look at art like that in person, it isn't as perfect as it looks when it's been photographed or or often being shown on computer screens. And I guess it sort of relates, for me, it's something that I have to remember because although I did go to galleries and enjoy looking at art before I became a painter myself, I didn't at that time look at it in the same way. I think yeah. once you start creating with paint, and actually having the experience of, oh, I put that brush stroke down and it didn't come out the way I intended, or you start really noticing a lot more of the details. Um, so by the time that I was really thinking about things in that level of detail and really in the practice myself, which was around 2018, 2019, well, we know what happened next. We all stayed home for two years. So I didn't really yeah. go out and see art in person while I was kind of in the more formative years of digging into it, one of the first things I went to was um, an exhibition opening um, that a friend was in here in Brisbane, and that was towards the beginning of last year. And again, I was struck there as well, seeing the paintings in person. I sort of realised a lot of the art that I've been looking at for the last few years, well, all of the art that I've been looking at, has been on a computer screen. It's backlit. Yeah. It's been photographed. It looks quite saturated. It looks quite clean and flat. Yeah. Like a lot of the fine details of the painting are kind of smoothed out by yeah. the pixels. And maybe I had started to develop a bit of a misconception that when I looked at my paintings on the wall and they looked too rough and unfinished, that actually paintings do look like that. That <laughs> the painting on my wall shouldn't like a, look like a soft, pixelated, saturated, yeah. flat instinct. Do you know? Like it really yeah, makes a huge difference. Abs makes a big difference. And one of the things that um, came up for me when we were talking about this is when I was going in art school, and we were looking at these little art history books, you know, because you're supposed to study art history and you're looking at these little pictures, you know, one inch by two inch, like tiny, tiny pictures. And they're talking about how really important this painting is. And you're looking at it and you're just not feeling the impact yeah. that they are trying to impress upon you. And I remember thinking like, huh, interesting. And then when I went to Florence, and I saw art in person that I had previously seen in a book and I saw it in person and I was like, whoa, oh my gosh, it's so different, you know, when you see art in real life. And I think we can't forget that, like mm. we can't forget what it actually feels like, um, not only for us as artists to look at it and, you know, really see how imperfect it all is but also the impact that it has in person mm. you know um the scale of that mitchell painting you know was huge but if you would have seen it in a tiny book where it was just a little thumbnail 
you know, you wouldn't have felt its presence the way that you do when you're in front of it physically as well. So not only am I struck by the imperfection, but I'm also struck by the impact that art has when it's mm. really fully realized in a 3D form. Like my sculptural work gets that as well, where it it looks, you know, one way in photos and I do my best to capture it. But until you see it in person, it's just not the same thing. You know, mm -hmm. and, and I think that it is something that we have to be conscious of, not only as artists, but as how potential collectors might miss um, really having an experience with it if they don't get to see it in person as well. It's yeah. really hard because we we love the online ability to, yeah. you know, reach out to more people and it makes it easier to, in many ways, to share the work because you can yep. do this process of you know, taking the photos, putting it up, and as opposed to like lugging it to an art fair or something, or yep. um, even just beyond the whether it's convenient or not, the opportunity itself, like the opportunities that I might have in Brisbane to put my art up somewhere that collectors can see it, can come across it, versus, I don't know, someone in, let's say, London or New York, vastly different. So we use the online space, but yeah, think about that context of getting the details and also getting the overall impact as best you can, I guess, in the way that you photograph and how you present yeah, it. And yeah, and I'm a big fan of photographing details because I do think we want to get close to it. Like I love mm. sharing really close views in my stories because I want people to get as close as I am, you know, to it. Like what am I actually seeing in mm. those close-up moments but yeah it's it's interesting isn't it we were both really struck by how there was so much imperfection in the art and it was it was really just freeing it was like yeah art's not perfect is it it's just not and you can be in yeah. a museum and not be perfect once we started talking about it of course we noticed we were walking around pointing out all sorts of paintings but starting with the Joan Mitchell I think what the kind of things we're talking about that struck me was that, you know, there were spaces, lots of spaces where you could see really clearly the white background, gesso, whatever it was. Um, you could see the texture of the canvas really clearly with it. So it didn't have a lot of layers and a lot of kind of creating a completely smooth surface. And this was a very incredibly free kind of abstract painting, like just incredibly free seeming strokes of all of many different colors yeah yeah very expressive and i think when we looked at the date um it was about two years before her death so we kind of were thinking about that and i think you said that it seemed like someone who was just feeling very free to go for it yeah and they you know at that stage of their experience in their life but in that there were bits of paint that had splattered down that were kind of very thin you know where you could kind of see the white very easily behind it or um I think that's one of the things that when I'm looking at my own painting I often notice and then fix you know where there's a thin bit of paint that looks sort of like it's a, a it's more of an accident like it's not a a, a strong opaque paint mark and it's not a deliberate glaze it's just like something scraped through and so I think oh no it needs to be one or the other not these little kind of half marks yeah. yeah so that kind of 
accidental stuff, I guess, surprising stuff. And leads into the next thing that we were really talking quite a bit about, which is art can be anything. She was just really expressive and free and anything kind of went basically. There was no mm. filtering of like, oh, that's, you know, too watery of a mark, even though it was a splat. Like there wasn't any filtering. It was just like she put her marks down. It was expressive. It was powerful and not a lot of overthinking is mm -hmm. what I was looking at too. It was mm -hmm. like, that f pure, raw, expressive, no, you know, maybe she was overthinking, but it did not come across to me as her overthinking whatsoever no. in the way that it comes across and impacts us. But then as we started walking around, you know, and seeing the different mediums that people were playing with that were, you know, held to the museum standard, because the question we often hear, or I often hear in origin art and other, um, you know, artist communities is really, is this good enough to be art? Is this material mm -hmm. good enough? Is this, you know, of standards? Like, is it okay? Like, is collage okay? And I can tell you from the museum, anything, you can literally do anything. And I wanted to laugh a little bit with Beck because we even saw some stuff held together with paper clips. And in origin art, there was one time and she's like, didn't want to show us her work. I'm going to call you out, Beck. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, big. I've got nothing for you. to. I don't want you to see anything. It's just the stuff. It's held together with paper clips. And so she holds it up. I'm like, that's amazing. Like that, that has something. There's something there. Sure enough, in the museum, there's these amazing pieces held together with paper clips, honestly. Yeah. And it was just like, it was just that thing of like, everywhere you look, everything that you think a painting can't be because you're judging it for yourself, that mm -hmm. it's not of high enough standards or, you know, it's not this or it's not that. Like there was proof of it everywhere in the museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everywhere. And the paperclip piece was right next to something that looked like it had been printed on a very fine, maybe silk, but a similar kind of material. And it was... Um, attached to the top, I think, but attached think to the board behind it. Rushenberg, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think so. With bolts that were rusty and yep. that had started to mark the material. Yep. And I assume they hadn't changed that because that was the original way it was done. And we've noticed in the middle, so it was really large piece of material. So it was kind of, you know, pulling down on its own relatively light but nonetheless pulling down as fabric does and in the middle pressed, pressed. as part of the um photo transfer process yeah. yeah yeah so there was like an indent it was like it was it was clearly a process of you know whatever he was transferring was mm. you know wrapped around this circular shape and there was still this evidence of that former shape of whatever he was pressing on and there was no you know fixing it it was just left it became part of the piece and it was imperfect and it was mm. yet so perfectly imperfect you know mm -hmm. and like when you start looking at all that stuff as an artist and you're like it, it literally can be anything it doesn't have to be this perfect thing i guess the main point is you know is it saying something is it doing something yeah it was really fun to see that from a perspective of like yeah you can just do anything like really just yeah <laughs> make it up um i guess one thing i really took away was there was 
there was a clear um, stake in the ground for these people, you yeah. know, in terms of what they were doing and saying. And so that to me also was kind of the counterbalance to that. Yeah, it can be imperfect, but they were also, you know, really working on saying something in that moment, you know, mm. and kind of making statements that f maybe at that time hadn't, be, hadn't been said before or mm. ways of doing things hadn't been done before. Um, so I think, again, it was just showing a lot of creativity. I saw a massive amount of creativity being around that. Like, it's just contagious where you just feel like you want to just go make stuff, you know? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, I'm stuck in the city and now I need to go make stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On our way out, as we decided that we were super hungry and needed to go eat. <laughs> Again, <laughs> um, we were about to bypass the gallery shop because that can be, as you know, a, a uh, dangerous place for an artist. And then I was such a actually, no, I've been thinking about buying an art book now for months and like lovely full print. And it's hard to get a feel for those kind of things when you're just looking at them online. Funnily enough, speaking of art and to get it, you yeah. know, a sense of. So I was kind of thinking that I would like to find a Joan Mitchell uh, book. Um, that f had a lot of her pictures because I find them visually inspiring, you know, engaging and really spark me. So I said, let's risk it. Let's go into the gallery shop. <laughs> and we wandered around pulling books off shelves. Michelle laid her hand on an artist who was one of her favourites, which was surprising in itself and sparked a whole <laughs> other conversation, um, who I had been looking at recently, but who I didn't think of as a visual inspiration for me. And that's Agnes Martin, who is from the abstract expressionist group, part of that group of the women who I love, mm -hmm. like Takunin and um, the Ninth Street women, they're called. But her art really rose a little bit later. And I'm speaking so authoritatively on her, of course, because I read the book yesterday. Um, but people would would may know her because what she's known for are very minimal, mostly pale works that had grid lines, usually out of pencil. Very beautiful, quiet kind of work and now you grabbed it and said she was one of your favorites Michelle and I immediately because I had an idea of what her work was about said I'm really surprised that Michelle who is the lover of color whose like main interest is in color works in, in gradients of color doing this sculptural work you would say that Agnes Martin who famous for these very monochromatic pale symmetrical kind of works why is she one of your favorites? Well, there's so many things I love about her. I mean, in, in fact, even talking about her again, I'm like, and I love this about her and I love this about her. That's what I was thinking in my head right then. Mm. I, um, One of the things that struck me about her when I've watched documentaries and interviews with her and just really gotten to know her, um, first for her minimal work, which is why I was originally drawn to her, but when I started learning about her as a person mm -hmm. and her philosophy and surrendering to the work, like mm -hmm. just going all in and that process that happened for her, I really became interested in her philosophy of art and her way of thinking. And her color is absolutely beautiful from a minimalist point of view, which I'm really curious about and interested in as an artist as well. But I'm I'm drawn for her more of her philosophy and her um, ability to say so much with minimalism as well. Mm -hmm. 
So the surrendering that you're talking about, she has an interesting biography because she suffered from schizophrenia her whole life and she had periods of time where it really impacted her ability to work um, and sometimes where she was hospitalised. And from – so I'm sorry. I've, she bought the book. I, I bought the book. <laughs> that so it's agnes martin um paintings writings and remembrances and it's just a beautiful oh it's book. absolutely stunning it not only has her work um featured in lovely color images of course but what they've done she was actually obviously a keen writer and what they've done is taken kind of direct copies of her handwritten notes and reproduce them on these pages that are like notebook pages so they have the texture and the full color as though it's it's you know a yellow lined school book writing paper from the 60s and it's inserted into the book in sections so it's just beautifully executed um by and it's authored by her long time art representative and and dealer so there's a a lot of the writing in it is it's her own it's um from her notebooks it also includes some lectures and notes on lectures that she gave and the other fun thing is that it includes notes that the dealer that he took during studio visits through the 70s and 80s so what's interesting about her biography is that she came she really came to that more minimalist approach and started to just get into the idea of the grids and that kind of representation um, in the early 60s. And I did the maths. At that point, she was in her late 30s. She's like 38, 39. So she had been painting for 20 years before she felt that she started to um, reach and achieve this mission that she had. I'll quote from the book. With the development of the grid, she fulfilled her mission to create paintings at once devoid of intellectual content and simultaneously about something. So she wanted the paintings to be about in internal feelings, about her experience of beauty, but not to be representative in any way and not to contain anything that we could think about we'll come back to that because it relates to the idea of surrender but what's interesting about that is in uh by 1967 she was having difficulty with her mental health and she felt that she wasn't able to create the way that she wanted to because she was very meticulous in this kind of separation of the intellectual and she wanted to be able to create from very pure inspiration so at the age of 45 she um, decided that she was going to give up painting. And that's when she moved to New Mexico. She didn't paint again for like six or seven years. So just the, I mean, just that in itself, when I think about how much in a hurry we can be, I'll speak for myself, a lot of us, I've been uh, (laughs) seriously painting for all of four years. (laughs) And you're like, I'm not where I want to be now. And here's Agnes I'm not achieving my vision that I want. I'm finding it hard. I I want it to be this and that. And it's the, what I'm trying to express feels difficult. And 
why haven't I worked it out <laughs> in the last six months? So she painted for 20 years before she started to really break into where her art would ultimately end up. And then she stopped. Yeah. So for a you know, huge chunk of time, which yeah. just goes to show how immersed as an artist she really was. Like yeah. it did look like she was stopping, you know, but. I mean, I think it was that thing of like, she just kind of had to get herself sorted mm-hmm. um, first. You know, it's kind of that thing of put your oxygen mask on first. I feel like that's kind of what she had yeah. to do during that period. And um, and then she came out even stronger, you know, yes. than before with fresh perspectives. And the lifestyle that she lived, we have talked before about wanting to go and like live on a shack in on a mountainside. I'm not sure it's quite to the extent that Agnes did because she lived in New Mexico yeah. then for the rest of her life into she passed away in her 90s in these sort of buildings that she'd built herself. Um, she had to move a couple of times because she was leasing the land, but um, very basic amenities. Like, And this is why the studio visit notes are so amazing because – you know, traveling out there with, she'd come and pick them up in town in Albuquerque and drive out with her pickup truck. There was no hot water. There was like a bathtub just out in the field that she'd fill with a hose and then it would warm up during the day. (laughs) Um, There was no electricity for a while. And in terms of food, she was just growing tomatoes and eating tomatoes and cheese. And, And in the winter, it was sometimes you couldn't get into town because of the roads so she just lived on tomatoes and cheese for months on end because she was so wholly immersed in the creation and um when they went to visit one time and she said you know I'm just on a bananas and coffee diet (laughs) because she didn't want to think she didn't want to cook she's like if I'm hungry I go Agnes eat another banana Literally, that's what she said. To me. That's going to be my new diet. I love it. I am yeah. so on board with that. Yeah. I so have, all that I decision making that we talk yes. about, all that mental load, she Sign got rid of all up. of that. She yeah. even said um, in one of them that although she would like a dog for companionship, she didn't keep a dog or a cat because they would be too distracting. She was just eight, nine hours painting, then you know, sleeping, eating when she yeah. needed to, yeah. complete immersion. Very much. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, Amazing. I, I, not yeah. for everyone, but no. incredible. Yeah, definitely. But you can kind of see, I mean, I know we joke about like what's on the food menu at my house at the mm. Luminatos, but you can kind of see like you do get um, decision fatigue, you know, yeah. when you're immersing yourself with really – conceptually wading through these ideas then you go physically do the act which takes more decision making brain power and effort and that's why by the end of the studio days i'm like i don't really care we i actually don't i mean i (laughs) would be happy with a banana or rice and beans which is another one of those things that um if i didn't have tomatoes and cheese i would have rice and beans like i'm that kind of person where that's a very survival food it's gonna keep you going yeah. <laughs> when you compare the kind of lives that we are managing to that level of absolutely stripped out, no one else there, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you told the people in the town, she is a real character. I'm not saying you want to emulate her complete personality. <laughs> but she told the people in the town if anyone came and knocked on her door, she'd cut their head off. Like she did not want people coming. She did not want, she did not want to enter. All she wanted to be with was the art. Um, ah. And in terms of the surrender that you talked about, like obviously there's a lot of surrender there, but there was there's also she had a very developed philosophical um, idea about the whole art process, and, and a lot of the writings are actually about what mm-hmm. she thinks about the art process, and she shared that in lectures with students. She felt that thinking was the death of art; that art could only be a very uh, kind of pure experience of a an innate inspiration that we all have, an, an innate perception of beauty, unhindered, uncolored, which is, she said, very difficult to do and can't be maintained all the time, uncolored by any of this kind of intellectual stuff that we, where we think and we compare. And, um, you know, she said, if you, if you think you're making a painting by putting together, by thinking and putting together, you know, a, a bunch of things that you like, the painting's dead. So that's, I can see that's the kind of surrender you were talking about. And it, it, when you picked up that book and I was like, oh, I hadn't, you know, hadn't thought Agnes Martin would be a book that I would buy. And, and I sort of flicked through it and it really grabbed me. And um, at the time in the gallery shop, I said, I think I will get this. I will get this. It feels like the moment to get it. And you said it felt fated. And when I was reading through this yesterday, it was I was really blown away. It reminded me a lot of um, one of my all-time favorite books, which is about writing, and I've quoted it several times in episodes, by Brenda Yuland, which was written in the 1930s, I want to say. Very similar um, thoughts around beauty, around um, the very classical kind of, interpretation of what inspiration is that it comes from within that it that is it is the essence of life that we need to channel it without intellectual interruptions just wonderful absolutely wonderful thank you to it Michelle. is <laughs> it's I'm telling you she tapped I don't know I just look at her as one of those few people that has tapped into like the true source mm. without needing any reference to explain to herself like mm-hmm. she was able to like visualize it internally and then just poof you know walked into the studio and made it happen i don't think that happens for all of us you know mm. as as channeled like i think there is that channel that she had that was such a just pure connection um and i do think that because we live in these times where there are so many distractions, our life is so full. And if I said to my family, don't come home or I'm going to cut your head off, <laughs> I would be in trouble <laughs> because it is a choice to have a family. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like, I mean, as much as I joke and say, I'd love to be alone. Like I do love my family and, and mm-hmm. want to have a more harmonized life Yeah, where I can be alone with the artwork and be alone um, with my family and like kind of blend the both of both worlds. Um, So I think that, you know, she has a unique walk in life. Yeah, definitely. Um, But I do love her. Like it's in, it's within, like it's all Mm. within. I just, Mm -hmm. I so believe that. I think that sometimes we need tools to help us pull it out. Um, 
And I do think that what she's referring to in terms of thinking and overthinking, like I think we can kill it by, you know, overthinking it. Like you have to just sort of like surrender and release it. Yes. I guess that's what I really related to with what I know about her is she would have this inspiration. And if I, if I remember right, I don't know if it talks about it in the book, but she would visualize this painting in her head, the size of a postage stamp is Mm -hmm. what I've heard in documentaries. And, and she would just literally surrender and go make it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, but it was a very pure connection. She wasn't sitting there going, should I make it? Should I tweak it? Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe she did, but based on the stories and based on what you're saying about the book is it was a real surrender of like the vision came through. It was there, make it, Mm. lesson, release it. Michelle and I happened to have both seen when we picked up this book, uh, realized that we'd both seen there's a an interview on YouTube with her quite late in her life, I think. So um, I will try and find the link to that and put that in the show notes because both of us were sort of familiar with her and a bit taken with her just by having watched that interview. Um, there was one example in the book um, where she explained to during one of the studio visits that she'd been working on because I think she did a lot of you know sketching and kind of smaller works to start with she'd been working on her next little collection of pieces to to share it wasn't coming together for her it just wasn't working for some reason and she said that the feeling that she had the the voices that she heard said that it needed to be asymmetrical and she did not do asymmetrical work all these grids it was like symmetry was part of her whole thing Mm -hmm. but she had this direction that this particular thing needed to be asymmetrical so and she said that she resisted it the direction you know the the guidance told her that's what it needed to be but that's she didn't that's not what she felt she wanted to do Mm -hmm. and it just blocked everything up and she got stuck so in the end, she, she said she gave she in. She had to surrender. And she, 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 she surrendered and, yeah. and made it asymmetrical. And she said as soon as she did that, it all, it all came together like on paper and then she moved in and did the canvas um, pieces. And I think that, if I remember correctly, potentially the only set of paintings she did that were, had asymmetrical aspects of all of her work. So you can imagine the struggle. It's like us saying, oh, no, but I'm a this painter. I don't do that kind of painting. Why would I go and do that kind of painting? Or there's just do the thing. I'm literally going through something very similar. Like I, my, my internal guidance, like I call it more intuition, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and just that, that for me, it's a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And I really am trying to be much more open and flexible with that mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. my resistance was like, but you don't do it's a, it's around colors that I haven't worked with. Um, and I've been super resistant, like, Oh no, I don't do those colors. Yeah. And literally like, it was just like, no, I, that's not what I do. But I find that like, you can't resist. And then what happens is if you can really kind of allow flexible ways of seeing, Mm-hmm. It unfolds in a way that you couldn't imagine, mm-hmm. and you can actually fall in love with it in a way like, oh, who knew? You know, 
Yeah. So I find that really fascinating. And it's, it's I, I mean, it's good to know it happens to the best. So the best. Yeah. when it happens to us, like it's shouldn't be a surprise. Like it just happens to everyone, I guess, you know, like you kind of get into this, you know, rigid box of who you think you are and what kind of art you've always made. Mm-hmm. And then inspiration takes form in a new way. And I don't know, it's there for a reason. So yeah. And then if you resist it, what's going to happen? Creates a block. Creates a block. It's not good. Yeah. I think as far as that Agnes Martin book, I definitely, there's more that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of episodes, I'm sure. But as far as the visit to the National Gallery of Victoria, we had some, just some great takeaways from it, didn't. Art's imperfect. Yep. Art can be anything. Yes. Surrender to your art. I feel like it was a masterclass <laughs> in a gallery it visit. Was. It was. Yeah, definitely. Got to do more of those very soon. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs>